You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Coming to you from Classic City, the capital of the Bulldog Nation. It's time for another edition of the podcast designed for the most die-hard Georgia fans in the country. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another edition of the Glory UGA podcast. I'm your host, Tyler. And after several weeks of teasing it, today is the day that we finally kick off our scheme theme month that will at the very least carry us through the rest of the month of May and who knows maybe even into June depending on the reception and the demand on your part so if you find yourself enjoying these scheme theme episodes and you want more of them reach out and let us know on twitter at glory underscore UGA you can also email us if that's more your thing at glory UGA podcast at gmail.com Hopefully you guys know that one of our primary goals in producing this podcast, really probably our primary goal in producing this podcast, is to give all of you diehard, hardcore Georgia fans the content you crave. So if you have any specific X and O base questions that you would like us to cover over the course of the next month or so, we welcome you to send those to us as well. We've already gotten a lot of feedback on the scheme theme idea, and I've gotten a lot of great questions that we're going to try to cover over this next month plus or whatever it ends up being. But if there's anything that you've ever wondered about schematically or just wanted to know more about, maybe you have like a, a pretty solid idea, but you just want to know more. If you hear those buzzwords watching games on Saturdays, you know the RPOs, three techs, logo, quarters, anything like that, and you want to learn more about them, let us know and we will do our best to put something together for you. So my goal with this scheme theme idea is to help all of our listeners, all you guys out there listening, take your knowledge and understanding of the sport to the next level. That's what I'm trying to do here. So if you listen to this podcast, like I know that you know your stuff. That's not in question here. This isn't meant to insult anyone out there. You guys know football, but just like anything, you can always learn more about it, which I think really can enhance your enjoyment of the sport. And I'm going to use myself and tennis as an example. You guys know, big Georgia tennis fan, been going to tennis matches for like nine years now, huge fan. And I've said before, I was hooked from like the very first match I went to. But saying that, I had just a, like the most rudimentary understanding of tennis. Like saying that, like saying that I had just like a basic understanding of tennis doesn't do justice to just how little I understood about that sport before I started going to matches all those years ago. 
but I, I still knew enough to enjoy the sport and keep coming back. And as the years passed, I picked up on more and more of the basics, but it really wasn't until I started actually learning how to play the sport myself that I truly realized just how little I actually knew about tennis. You know, the strategies, the techniques, even like the equipment. I, I, I knew nothing. And I've been taking lessons, going to clinics, playing matches like three or four times a week now for about a year. And I still learn something new every time I go out. I pick up a little tip or make a mistake that I learn from every single time out without fail. And as I've actually worked to learn more about tennis, my enjoyment of watching Georgia tennis this season has incre increased exponentially because I, I just simply have a much better understanding of exactly what I'm watching and like why the players are doing what they're doing, why they're having success, why they're struggling, why they hit this shot in that situation, what they're doing to their opponent, how they're setting things up. All those things are now starting to click for me. And I'm certainly enjoying tennis on a different level than I ever had before because just because I understand it better. And so my hope is that this scheme theme month can do something similar for all you guys listening out there. Just help you see the game and maybe a little bit of a different way and ultimately, again, just enhance your enjoyment of the sport that we all already love so deeply and so passionately. Now, before we get started, I, I do just want to put one more thing out there, and it's this. I am not an expert. I'm not, guys. Absolutely not an expert. There are people, many, 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 many people out there who know far more about football than I ever will. But I love football. I'm passionate about it. And like anything you are passionate about, I have just this kind of ferocious, never-ending hunger to learn more about the sport. I did coach for a couple of years after graduating college, but as much as I love football, I love my wife more, and after getting a, a taste of that coaching lifestyle and what it would take to be as successful as I would want to be doing that, I realized that pursuing coaching just meant sacrificing time with her, and that wasn't the lifestyle that I personally wanted to have. Priorities, right? But that didn't mean I was just going to give up my, my passion entirely. Not at all. Of course not. I still study the game. I still keep up with the trends, the innovations, because I love it, not because I'm going out there and coaching on on Thursdays or Fridays or whatever it might be. I just love it. It fascinates me. It's in my DNA and I still want to stay in tune with the game as much as I possibly can. So what do I do? I, I go to coaching clinics. I go to camps. I buy football scheme books. I read articles. I invest in virtual coaching clinics, all of that stuff. It's just to keep up with the new ideas and how everything is evolving. But even though I do that stuff, that doesn't make me an expert. I'm still very much not an expert. The coaches and the players those are the true experts because they are the pros. They're the ones that do this for a living. And that ain't me anymore. Not me. That's a whole nother level of knowledge. So do I, do I know some football? Do I know some ball? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I feel confident saying that. Do I have more knowledge, maybe a little bit of a deeper understanding of the game than your average football fan? Yeah, I think so. Again, I think so. But again, not an expert, and the way football has evolved at such a rapid rate, there is still so much that I just do not know. But if I don't know it, if you guys ask a question and you want to learn about something that I don't really know that much about, I'll research it for you, and I'll get back to you on it. And that's just another reason why I love football. For all the stereotypes about football players just being these blockheads who can't even spell their own names, it's such a beautifully complex sport with so many layers of strategy and schematics, and it's constantly evolving. Like, I've been around and studied this sport my entire life. 
and as I've said, there, there's still so much that I just, I don't know. I just don't know, and, I, and, I, and I'll own that. There's still so much out there for myself to learn, and, and that's exciting for me. It keeps it fresh, it keeps you interested, all those things. But all right, enough with the prologue. I just wanna put that out there. Let's go ahead and let's kick this thing off. And strap in today, guys, strap in, because as much as I try to simplify and streamline today's content, it's still some hardcore X node talk. I want to kick off this scheme thing month with a bang. I, I wanted to go deep with this one. So I just put that out there. This is a, this is a deep dive. You might want to listen to this episode two or three different times, if not more, because if you're like me, you will pick up something different each time. There's a reason I go back and rewatch every Georgia game, you know, during the offseason, rewatch them at least three or four times. There's a reason I do that. And there's a reason why like, when I watch clinic videos or read articles and books on this stuff, there's a reason I rewatch or reread them at least three or four times. It's because I'm focusing on something different each time. Like I pick up something a little bit different each time. Maybe it, it clicks something that didn't quite click for me the first time. Maybe it clicks for me on the second or third viewing or second or third reading or whatever it might be, especially when those clinics or those tapes or those books or articles, whatever it is, when they are multifaceted like today's episode will be. The, the brain can only withstand so much new information at one time. So don't feel bad going back and re-listening this a couple of times. I would actually advise you to do that because this is such a deep dive and I'm throwing a ton of information at you guys today here on this first scheme theme episode. So what are we actually covering today? Now, some of the stuff that I cover on these episodes will be more general football talk, while some of it will be more UGA specific. And today, we're going to lean more towards the Georgia specific end of the spectrum as we focus our attention on Georgia's run defense dominance. Now, when I decided to do this scheme theme month, th this is something that I was kind of thinking about covering is one of the ideas I was percolating in my mind. Okay, what do I actually want to cover from a schematic standpoint? This is one of the things I was thinking about. But then on top of that, we also got a couple of questions about it as well. In particular, we got a question from a guy that I just found out has been a very, very long time listener. It's the first time we've actually ever heard from him um, on social media or email, but he emailed us uh, and his name is Jonah. So Jonah, I want to give you a shout out, man. Guys, Jonah has been with us from like the very, very beginning. Like we've talked in the past about how when we first started, we were getting like, I think we were on SoundCloud. I want to say it's been so long, I don't even remember exactly where our show was hosted. But we were getting like 50 listeners an episode. And that, and that was like, I remember getting that first like 50 listeners. I was like, let's go, high five, man, let's go. We were all pumped up about it. And Jonah's been with us since th those days, way back when. So we really appreciate you sticking with us all those all these years, Jonah. That's awesome, man. And definitely don't be a stranger, buddy. But Jonah had a bunch of great questions. I'm going to use a couple of his today. Uh, and one of the questions Jonah had, and I'm going to use it here because it kind of, again, jive with something that was already percolating in my mind, talking about this, our run defense. And here's what Jonah asked. He said, our defense is stellar against the run, but football has shifted to have more emphasis in the passing game. Should we adjust to be more heavily focused in the pass defense? How would we do that realistically staying in the Kirby-esque scheme? That's a fantastic question. I mean, that is a killer question. 
And I mean, I could probably do an entire month just doing episodes on this question. But we're going to try to fit this in here, streamline it as much as I can into like one episode. We'll, we'll see how this goes, guys. This is the first one we've done. We'll see if it's too much or whatnot. And maybe we just need to simplify them even more moving forward. But we're going to try to answer this as well as I can in as streamlined a way as possible. So as not to throw too much at you guys in this first episode. But let's go about answering this, right? So we all know that Kirby Smart is a defensive guru. That's how he made a name for himself under Nick Saban. We know that. And, and we all know that we have had the best teams in America over the past two seasons. Now, there might be some teams out there, the Wisconsin's, the Pitts, whoever, the Utahs, might have um, some disagreement with that. They might not necessarily agree with that, and then they can make their case. That's fine. But I think if you look at the numbers, all the advanced metrics, I think it, it, you can at least make an argument that George, a very strong argument, that George has had the best overall defense in America over the past two seasons. Now, yeah, it, it did take Kirby a, a few years and a couple of recruiting classes to get the roster where he wanted it to, especially defensively, to kind of get the players in that fit his scheme. But we are rolling now, and there is no turning back at this point. We, like, we actually might be better, you know, there, we might be better one year than another year. There's, there's going to be ebbs and flows, but our ebbs aren't going to be that dramatic. Year in, year out, we are going to be among the best defenses in America. We might not have the best defense in America every single year, but we're going to be in that conversation just about every single year moving forward because see, we've gotten our roster to that point. And we have the coaches, we have the players to make that possible. But okay, what has been at the core of our success defensively? We've been really good. What's been at the core of that? And Jonah is all over this. You're all over it, Jonah. To me, and if you ask Kirby Smart, I think, actually, I know he'd tell you the exact same thing because I've heard him say it in coaching clinics. It's been our dominant rush defense. That has been the core of our overall defensive success. As Jonas said his question, our rush defense has been stellar. That's a fantastic word. It's been stellar. But just how stellar, just how dominant has our rush defense been over the past two seasons? Well, dominant flat out dominant. And, I, and I, I've thrown some of these numbers at you guys before, but just in case you, you either don't remember them or you missed it, you missed that episode, whatever, we'll throw some of these at you guys again, maybe add a few more on as we go through the episode. But just to give you an idea of how dominant we've been. When I say dominant, when, when Jonah says our defense is stellar against the run, here's what we're saying. So we were number one in rushing yards allowed per game each of the last two seasons, giving up 74 yards per game on the ground last year, 72 the year before. In 2020, we were also number one in yards per carry allowed. In 2019, we were number two in yards per carry allowed. We gave up 2.47 yards per carry last year and 2.62 yards per carry in 2019. Again, as good as anyone in America, all right? As good as anyone. Uh, but that, it doesn't stop there. We, one of the things that we've also been really good at, and we put an emphasis on this, a big part of how we scheme our defense is to limit explosive runs. And we have been, again, better than anyone. In fact, far better than anyone, especially in the SEC, in limiting explosive runs. So if you look at 2020, we were number one in rushes of 10 plus yards allowed. We only allowed 16 rushes of 10 or more yards last year. Who was number two? It was Texas A&M. Well, guys, AM is good, but there's a huge gap between Georgia at number one and AM at number two and explosive runs allowed and 10 plus yard runs allowed. Again, we only allowed 16, AM allowed 29. That's really good. That's almost twice as many rushes of 10 plus yards 
allowed by AM compared to us. Almost twice as many. And let's take it a step further. Let's go to 20 plus yard runs. We allowed only three rushes of 20 or more yards in 2020. That was, again, number one nationally. AM also number two nationally in rushes of 20 plus yards allowed. They allowed more than twice as many rushes of 20 plus yards than we did. They allowed eight. We allowed three. They allowed eight. I suck at math. That's more than two, two times as many rushes of 20 plus yards. So not only are we better than everyone else, like it's really not even close when it comes to limiting explosive runs. You go back to this, it's the same story in 2019. Tackling efficiency in 2019. Now this is a pro football focus uh, stat, but 2019, we were third nationally in tackling efficiency, 93.4. 2020, last year, we were first actually at 90. We actually dropped back a little bit, but so did everyone else. So well, I guess with COVID rules and not having the spring and all that kind of stuff, everyone kind of dropped back in their tackling efficiency. But we were still first actually in our tackling efficiency in 2020. We are better than anyone in the country when it comes to stopping the run over the past two seasons. Those are just facts. Those are the numbers to back it up. And I can go on and on with more and more advanced stats, but, but you get the idea, right? There hasn't been one single team in America that has been as comprehensively good at stopping the run over the past two seasons as we have been. But the purpose of episodes like this is not to just tell you that and stop there. We've been telling you that. Like, again, we've gone over some of those numbers before over the past couple months. You already know those things. Jonah already knows that we are stellar against the run. The purpose of scheme theme episodes like this is to explain exactly how and why we have been so consistently dominant against the run the past few seasons and why I think we continue to look to be in good shape to do that moving forward. Now, of course, you you can't talk about this without talking about players. Players have a lot to do with that. You cannot deny that. There is a reason why the teams that recruit the best generally win at the highest levels. And there is a reason why there are certain teams that will never truly compete for national titles, all right? Because they just don't have the players up and down their 85. They just don't have those kind of guys. They don't recruit like that. But there are a lot of teams with good players on defense, guys. There are a lot of players out there. A lot of teams have good players on defense. But not all of them have anywhere near the type of success that we have had stopping the run. Alabama, for instance, each of the past two seasons has given up at least one more yard per carry than we have. Now, Alabama's won national title. They've been fantastic. But in terms of stopping the run, they haven't been as good as we have. Now, they've won the whole thing, and we haven't done that. But wouldn't you guys agree that Alabama has just about, at the very least, as good of players as we do? I think that's fair to say, right? But we've been at least a full yard per rush better than them over the past couple of seasons. LSU gave up a full yard more per rush than we did in 2019. And get this, they gave up 2.5 yards per rush more than we did in 2020. And they have good players, right? Right? So there has to be more to it than just having players. A lot of teams have players, but even those teams with with the players that we have, the type of players that we have, they aren't as successful and as dominant stopping the run as we are. It's beyond just having the players. It's about scheme. It's about technique. It's about coaching, all right? That all goes hand in hand. So other than recruiting at an extremely high level, what is it that we are doing that is allowing us to dominate so consistently in basically every category against the run? Well, that's a long answer, but I'm going to try. I'm going to try my best to answer it for you. I'm going to do this to the best of my ability and to the extent of my knowledge. As I laid out at the beginning, though, I'm not an expert. 
There's far more to it than even I know, but I'm going to tell you guys what I know. I'm going to do it to the best of my ability. And I think the best place to start is by explaining the philosophy behind putting such an emphasis on stopping the run. Because I've heard from a lot of you over the years echo exactly what Jonah asked in his question. Shouldn't we put more of an emphasis on stopping the pass and rushing the passer? We've gotten that in a variety of different ways, that same theme. We've gotten asked that in a variety of different ways over the years. And on this show, even on our own show, we spent the past year or so highlighting how football at all levels is becoming increasingly passing oriented by the year. So why am I spending an entire show detailing why and how we are so successful stopping the run if everything is becoming so passing oriented, especially offensively? Well, because the better you are at stopping the run, the more players you can commit to stopping the pass. It's as simple as that. The basic philosophy is if we can stop the run without having to add more numbers into the box, like you always always hear about rolling the safety down the box, if we can stop the run without having to do that, well, that leaves you with numbers in the back end against the pass game. In its most basic form, that's what it's all about. It's about numbers. Uh, again, I, I go back to it. You, you hear this all the time about getting numbers in the box to stop the run, rolling the safety down. Well, yeah, sometimes you have to do that. There, there's coverages and defenses where you do that. But our entire defense, like even we do that sometimes, but the vast majority of our defense, like it's, it's really built around the goal of stopping the run with even numbers. We want to be elite at stopping the run with either equal or sometimes less numbers than what the offense has in the box. And for those of you who have been screaming at the top of your lungs, we've heard you. You've been screaming at the top of your lungs that we need to put more of an emphasis on stopping the pass. That's what this is. That's what this is allowing us to do by saying that our goal is to be able to stop the run with even or less numbers than what the offense has in the box. What that is really, it's really an admission that the passing game has started to dominate football. It's exactly what Jonah's getting to. There's Kirby Smart, our defensive coach, is saying, yeah, we get it. We know that this game is becoming passing-oriented. We understand that. It's dominating football. But we want to be able to counter that by stopping the run with even numbers. Because what that will do is it allows us to have a plus one or sometimes even a plus two in the back end because the quarterback doesn't count since he has to throw the ball, right? And if we can do that, that will allow us to play three defenders over two receivers or four defenders over three receivers, whatever the situation might be on any given snap. It helps us protect our corners. And and this is one of the reasons why, of course, we, not just us, but everyone's talking about our inexperience at cornerback, right? Like that's a major concern for us heading into the 2021 season. And people are freaking out. And we've talked about it. Like it's certainly something that bears watching, but I'm not freaking out about it as much as some people are, that cornerback situation, because I know that we are going to be elite against the run again, and we're going to be able to control the ground game with even numbers, which will allow us to protect those very inexperienced and young cornerbacks. We're not going to have to roll safeties in the box as much as, as other teams do because we don't need to, right? And not only does it allow you to protect your cornerback so you can have to get that safety help over the top, you can play with more too high safety looks or, we call, or what we call middle of the field open looks, but you can also be more multiple in your coverages, which makes it much harder on the quarterback to operate. 
You're not as predictable defensively from a coverage standpoint. And you can be more multiple because you have more defenders to work with in the back end. Okay, so that's the philosophy, right? Do we get that? That's the philosophy. That's the why. That's the why we put such an emphasis on stopping the run. But now let's go to the how. How exactly are we doing this? How are we so successful stopping the run with even numbers? Now to explain that, we're going to take this position group by position group because they all have a role to play. It's not an easy answer. It's an extraordinary complex answer, a multifaceted answer, if you will. But let's take this position by position and let's start with the defensive line because I'm a believer uh, in that it all starts up front. It all starts up front. Now, our base front over the years, now Kirby Smart might tell you something different. That, that's fine. And he, again, Kirby Smart, like, like I, I'm, I'm nothing compared to Kirby Smart in terms of what he knows about defensive football. But just from, you know, my bird's eye view, watching what I watch, seeing what I see, it, it seems to me that our base front over the years has increasingly become what we call the mint front, M-I-N-T, like a breath mint, mint front. And that has been huge in helping us to stop the spread run teams that rely a lot on RPOs. They really kind of, their their run game is basically RPOs, right? An RPO, we'll we'll actually probably do an entire episode on what RPOs are because there's a lot of, we've talked about this a little bit before, but there's some misconceptions still out there about what exactly an RPO is. So we'll do an episode on that, like how to pick up when a team's running an RPO, what they're trying to do, who they're attacking, how you defend it, all those things. So I'm I'm not going to go into crazy detail with it today. Because I, I and, and like even the mint front, I'm going to save the mint front for another scheme theme episode later in the month. I actually will probably do it next week where I address all the talking heads that cl- claim Kirby is just a recruiter and can't coach. But I, I will briefly touch on it today. I will go into much more detail about the mint front later on this month, probably next week. But I, I will touch on it today because if we're talking about Georgia's rush defense and how we've been so dominant, I think it is a big part of why we've become so dominant against the run. And so I do want to at least include it to some small degree here on today's episode. So just give you a quick crash course in what the mint front is. We'll build on this next week. But our mint front is basically our version of what a lot of teams call the tight front. We, we spell that T-I-T-E. I don't really know why, but we, we spell it that way. Uh, and that tight front has become increasingly popular with the proliferation of spread offenses. Again, I will go into far more detail later in the month, but let's just go to the quick, quick crash course. Essentially, our mint or tight front, whatever you want to call it, I'm just going to call it the mint front. The mint, tight front, same thing, interchangeable terms, okay? What that allows a defense to do is, in a nutshell, allows you to stay in nickel, have an extra DB, that fifth DB on the field against spread to run teams, but still be able to match size inside and control the inside run game. The key to this front, the mint front, is playing with two four-eye players on the defensive line that align on the inside eye of the offensive tackle. When I say four-eye, that's an alignment number, okay? That means that if you're in a four-eye as a defensive lineman, you are aligning on the inside shoulder or inside eye of the offensive tackle. And a player, a defensive lineman who's in a four-eye on the inside shoulder of the offensive tackle that puts them in the B gap, okay? So A gap is the gap between the center and guard. B gap is the gap between the guard and tackle. C gap is the gap between tackle tight end, right? So it puts them in the B gap. Now, what this means, if you have your two defensive linemen that are playing four eyes, they each are occupying opposite B gaps, right? You have a B gap on the strong side, B gap on the weak side, all right? 
So know what this means that you have three players now. You have two inside linebackers and a zero-tech nose guard. Zero-tech means head up on the center who are controlling the A-gaps. You only have two A-gaps, one on either side. We have three players to control two A-gaps. You don't need three players if they're good enough, especially if your nose guard's good enough. You don't need three players to control two A-gaps. So that means you're going to have a free-running inside linebacker. Oh, I don't know, a guy like let's say maybe Roquan Smith. Think about Roquan Smith back in 2017, guys, right? Think about him running around side and sideline making plays. A, a big reason why he was able to do that was the mint front. Now, again, we don't run the mint front every single snap. You can't do that. But that was one of the things that we that we ran to kind of free up Roquan as a free runner to run all over the field making play after play. And yeah, I, I will go into more detail on this aspect of it later in the month, but it also helps you defend RPOs. The mint front will help you defend RPOs because it takes the inside linebacker out of conflict because they don't have the B gap anymore like they would in your over or under front, which is maybe a little bit more traditional. So that has become a big part of what we do against the run, right? Playing that mint front. But there's so much more to it than just that. And one of those other things that we do to stop the run is we ask our defensive linemen to two-gap a lot of the time. Not saying that we do that exclusively. We don't do anything exclusively, really, because we, you have to be multiple. You have to, you have to do different things on, on, on different plays because you can't get too predictable. But more often than not, especially like when we're in two high safety looks, right, when, when we're playing middle of the field open defenses or coverages, we are two-gapping. Now, now, when we get to middle of the field close, when we have a single high safety, then we're usually one-gapping. But we don't do that as often as we play with two deep safeties, playing that middle of the field open coverage, okay? So we're two-gapping a lot of the time, more often than not. And, and what I mean by that, like two-gapping, what, what does that mean, Tyler? Two-gapping, it means just what it, so, what it sounds like. The defensive lineman can be responsible for more than one gap. That's tough, right? But basically, our defensive linemen have a primary gap, and then they also have a secondary gap. Our defensive linemen are asked to control their primary gap first, right? See what's going on there, control that gap from the snap, but then transition to a secondary gap if the ball carrier does not enter their primary gap. This really is the only way you can defend the run with fewer numbers. Like if we're going back to like, hey, what we want to do philosophically is we want to be able to stop the run with equal or fewer numbers than what the offense has in the box. Or when I say numbers, I mean like guys, right? When we have few, like equal or fewer defenders in the box and the offensive lineman has blockers, right? That's what, I, that's what I'm talking about when I say numbers. If you want to do that, you have to have guys up front playing multiple gaps. Now, again, to clarify, just to clarify, not every defensive lineman is two gapping every single play. Not, it's not the way this works. It changes based on the call and the personnel grouping. There are a ton of moving parts. I'm not, I don't really have time to get into all that. This is already like calculus one. Uh, we might be getting, I don't want to go into calculus two right now. This, like, I don't want to go into trigonometry. I think that's harder than calculus, right? Probably, maybe. I'm not, math's not my thing. But I don't want to go there yet, all right? Let's just say, generally speaking, our defensive lineman that is aligned away from the running back they're going to be in, and when I say defensive line, I'm talking about our interior defensive line, our defensive tackles, guys like Devontae Wyatt, uh, Jalen Carter, who they can also play out wide, but you know, the Devontae Wyatt's, the Jalen Carter's, the Jordan Davis's, those guys, our interior defensive linemen who I'm talking about right here, right now. But generally speaking, the defensive lineman away from the back, that defensive lineman is going to be in react attack two gap mode, 
where they are reading the block and the play and reacting based off of that. While the defense lineman to the back is in attack react mode, where he's more in attack mode, right? He's not really necessarily two gapping in, in that in those scenarios. Again, very generalized, but that it gives you at least a, a good working idea of what we're doing there. And, and this is one of the reasons why we are not as disruptive and we don't create as much havoc. And I know this has been a a big talking point among some of our listeners and myself too, because I trust me, I get frustrated too. I want us to be more disruptive. I want us to create more havoc, all those things, have more tackles for loss, rush the passer more. I want us to be able to to do those things more than we do. Um, I I wish there was a perfect answer where we could like be as dominant as we are against the run and limiting explosive plays and also be more disruptive and create more havoc. And we're getting better at that. We're still not exactly where I want to be, but you have to sacrifice, in some ways, you kind of have to sacrifice one, at least to a degree, to get the other, right? Like, for example, like we were, we've been first in, we were first in yards per rush allowed last year, first in explosive runs allowed, as we said, but we were only 88th nationally in stuff rate. And stuff rate is the percentage of plays that your defense is stopping at or behind the line of scrimmage. And the reason for that is a simplification, but the big reason for that is our guys just aren't turned loose to fly up the field as much as some other teams do. We'll get to more of that. We'll talk about the inside linebacker play here in a little bit. And again, it's a conscious decision. It's really hard to be both. It's hard to be really, really disruptive and create a ton of havoc and also limit explosive plays. It's really hard. And this is a calculated decision on the part of Kirby Smart and our defensive staff that there is more value in controlling the run game consistently and not giving up big plays than there is in racking up more tackles for loss and more sacks. That's just what it is. It's a calculated decision. This is their philosophy. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. So I just want to put that out there as a little aside before we get to the edge players. Let's go ahead and move on. Let's move on to our edge players. And let's talk about how they contribute to the effort to stop the run. Obviously, your interior defensive linemen are going to have a big, a big role in that, but so are the edge players. So the inside linebackers, so is your secondary. We're going to get to all of that. And so again, here are the edge players. I'm, I'm trying to simplify things. Put that out there again, trying to simplify things. But I, I want you to have an understanding of what you're watching on Saturdays. Our edge players in an even front are usually in a six technique which is head up on the tight end, or if there's not a tight end to your side, where the tight end would be aligned if there was a tight end to your side. And and depending on where the back is aligned in a shotgun formation, the edge players are going to have one of two responsibilities. They're going to either be in attack mode or contain mode, or what 
Kirby calls, he calls it high gear or low gear. Now the player away from the back, okay? So if you're lined up on the on the defensive line, you're the edge player, even if you're not like, even if your hand's not in the dirt, if you're not in a two-point stance, if you're the edge player that is aligned away from the running back, which means like if you're lined up on the line and you look at the backfield, the running back is on the side of the quarterback opposite of you, okay? So if that is you you're an, and you're an edge player, you are going to be what Kirby Smart calls high gear, which means that edge player is basically in full go attack mode. And his responsibility is to set the edge. Now, I, I, I want to be careful here. When I say full go attack mode, that doesn't mean he's just freelancing. It doesn't mean he just gets to rush the passer and, or rush back there or, and get back as fast as he can to try to blow things up. That is, even the, even the high gear player, edge player, doesn't do that. He's got responsibility. His responsibility is to set the edge, okay? And, and think about this, okay? Why is his responsibility to set the edge? If the back is to your side, it cannot be outside zone or power to your side. Teams just don't do that. If the back is aligned away from you in a shotgun formation, there is a chance. Like if it's if it's outside zone or power, it's going to be to your side. So that edge has to be set. They might be trying to get around your edge. There's a good chance of that. So you have to set that edge and not allow that to happen. And when I say set the edge, that means you strike the blocker and you control that edge. You cannot allow yourself to get reached, which means the offensive lineman, the offensive tackle or tight end, whoever it is cannot reach to your outside shoulder and turn you inside, okay? You cannot allow that to happen because that gives up the edge and, and then contain is blown there, all right? So you have to set that edge and basically keep things inside, all right? Now on the other side, the edge player with the back to, the running back to his side, he's playing what Kirby calls a low gear technique. You might hear other coaches say you're the contain man, right? On the line of scrimmage. And so this low gear technique is more of a slow paced technique where you aren't just flying up the field. And again, like like the the high gear guy's not flying up the field, but he's more he's playing more aggressively than the low gear player. And you guys, you have seen you have all seen our edge players do this. You have seen them do this. You might not have known what to call it or why they were doing it, but you've seen this. Oftentimes the low gear player, especially the tight end or H back is not aligned to his side is playing a technique that we call surfing. And we rep this in practice a lot. Like this is a big part of what we do with our edge players, if the back is aligned to their side. You've all seen this. So when we when we say they're surfing, this is a technique that you kind of seen develop over the past decade or so with all these spread offenses and zone reads and all that kind of stuff, quarterback run game, right? And so when when a defensive or an edge player, defensive edge player is surfing. What they're doing is like they're they're kind of shuffling down the line with their arms out as the play goes away from him. All right, it looks like he's serving. Imagine, like, just picture this. You've seen guys do this, right? Just picture this. They're the the play's going away from them. The flow's going away from them, and they're kind of shuffling down the line. Their arms out. They're not they're not completely turning their shoulders and running. They're not doing that. They're surfing down the line. They aren't crashing with reckless abandon. It really does. It looks like he's surfing on grass. And when we do this. Like we do this to guard against the quarterback run or misdirection or the cutback at times too. If it's a zone read where the quarterback is reading a defensive player to determine whether to, you guys know this play, it's it's just standard now. If it's a zone read where the quarterback is reading a defensive player to determine whether he's going to give the ball to the running back or pull it and keep it himself around the end, you are very likely the player that he is reading on that backside, the backside defensive end or the backside edge player. So you want to muddy up that read 
And that's what the surfing technique does. The quarterback doesn't know if you're crashing or if you're staying with him. It muddies up that read. It makes it tougher. And if you have contained responsibility to your side and just crash down the line after the running back, like teams used to do for years and years and years going back decades, then the quarterback is just going to pull it and have a lot of room to run. Or if there's some sort of motion, whether it's jet motion or orbit motion back towards you, you have to play surf technique to make sure that ball isn't coming back around towards your side. By surfing an edge player, you can do both. With that edge player surfing, he can play the running back and he can also stay there because he's playing in a, he's playing it cautiously enough, low gear enough to where he can chase in the backside if he sees a handoff, but he also isn't fully committed so he can still play the quarterback, the cutback, or the misdirection. Okay, I hope that makes sense. And this is another reason, going back to like why we aren't as disruptive, rushing the passer, tackles for loss, havoc, all that kind of stuff. This is another reason why we don't rush the passer as well. We were 107th in standard down pass rush in 2019. Now, we were much better last year in standard down pass rush. We were actually 30th nationally, but still not elite. Still not elite. Still not where we should be considering the players that we have that can, that can actually rush the passer. But our guys just simply are not told to see ball, get ball. We don't rush our guys, at least on standard downs, with reckless abandon. Uh, we just don't do that. Uh, philosophically, we don't do it. Because, I mean, it's great when you do, like when you just unleash your guys, which I know a lot of us want to do at times. Like, even Again, I get frustrated with this myself sometimes. It's great when you do get back there and make those highlight play sacks, but you also leave yourself extraordinarily vulnerable to big plays. You really do. And our goal is to basically stone opposing offenses on first and second down and get them to third and long where we bring in our various dime packages and unleash our pass rushers on them. That's when you bring in Adam Anderson and you bring in Trevon Walker and you bring in uh, Ryan Davis, I think is going to be a part of that this year. You bring in all those guys, the speed guys, the versatile guys that can that can cover, can blitz, can rush a passer all on the line streams, can do all sorts of different things. That's when we get much more exotic coming after the passer. So that's, uh, in a nutshell, that's what we're doing with our edge players to be so dominant against the run. And there, it does come with a price because we're not as disruptive, but it really accomplishes what Kirby wants to accomplish and what our defensive philosophy is, which is eliminating big plays, making them earn it down the field. But all right, let's move it on to inside linebacker play. And the thing I want to focus on here is kind of like a combo philosophical technique thing. What we do with our inside linebackers in our largely two-gap scheme is we stack fit them. We stack our inside linebackers. Well, what does that mean, Tyler? You stack them. Like, well, what does that even mean? What that means is our inside linebackers essentially are coached to read their keys and stack over the top of the gap they are responsible for and then fit in that gap when the ball carrier makes his way through that gap. Now, this is very different from what I call downhill, like run through inside linebacker play, where you usually see that in a one gap scheme, where as soon as the ball is snapped, those inside linebackers take off like bullets flying downhill into their assigned gap. Now, this is, this is and that's basically what I grew up doing, like my entire life. That's what I knew. Um, then you get a coach and you learn some different things. And I, I want to do a quick compare contrast on this to illustrate it for you. And this kind of goes to Jonah's question. There are merits to both philosophies. The, the two gaps stack inside linebackers and the one gap run through inside linebackers. There are merit to both philosophies. 
There are coaches like Brent Venables at Clemson who strongly believe in one-gap run-through linebackers. And then there are those like Kirby who strongly believe in two-gap fronts and stacked inside linebackers. It's just a matter of preference and philosophy like a lot of things in life. And so this brings up another question that Jonah had. Another question Jonah asked was, can you compare and contrast Georgia's offensive and defensive schemes to other contenders? What do they do? Why? How is it better or worse than what we do? Now, we're not talking about offense here. We're talking about defensive play. We're just talking about inside linebacker play and I guess defensive front seven play. But we'll we'll take Clemson here, for example, and kind of compare that to what we do with our front seven. And I know this doesn't entirely answer your question, Jonah. We'll hopefully have a chance to get to the rest. Like it, Compare, contrast, maybe some offensive philosophies later on this month. But let, let's take Clemson and, and Georgia here and what we do with our front sevens. And uh, we'll, we'll try to compare and contrast that. So Clemson is one of the top one-gap run-through defenses. If you watch a Clemson game, you're going to see their inside linebackers running downhill hard at the snap of the ball, inserting themselves into their gap really trying to get in the backfield, make a play behind the line of scrimmage if they can. And, and I mean, if you watch them at the snap, their linebackers are basically like on the line of scrimmage almost. Like as soon as that ball snapped, they're boom, they're there. They're on the line of scrimmage. Now, if you watch our inside linebackers, unless they are blitzing, they stack themselves in their gap about two to three yards off the line of scrimmage and then read. If the ball carrier comes in their gap, well, then at that point, they're going to move downhill and fit the run. Okay. Now, why does Clemson do what they do? Why do we do what do we do? There, there are merits to both. Clemson does what they do because they want to be more disruptive. Like they put more of a premium on creating havoc, being disruptive, those kind of things, right? And they are far better at that than we are. I think that's one of the reasons like there's this perception that Clemson's defensive line is better than George's defensive line because like their, their havoc numbers, their tackle for loss numbers, their sack numbers are better than ours. Uh, but that's just largely like they have really good players. Don't get me wrong. They have really good players up front. They're right there with us, you know, when it comes to best defensive lines in the country. But they're just asked to do things different. Like they're just asked to do different things. Like they're given more free reign to do that. They're they're one gap. They're they're guys like let's say Brian Brissy on the defensive line. Like that dude's got one gap. He's shooting up. He's shooting that gap, man. He's shooting that gap, trying to make a play in the backfield. Their linebackers, James Skowski, those kind of guys. They're they're shooting gaps. Baylor Inspector shooting gaps. Right. They're getting in there, trying to get those tackles for loss, trying to make those big plays, and those numbers look really good, right? And 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 you see those highlight plays. Man, look at that sack. Look at that tackle for loss. It's a huge play. So Clemson, like they were first in tackles for loss in 2018. They were second in 2019 and second in 2020. Look at us over those the same three-year span. We were 95th in tackles for loss in 2018, 60th in 2019, up to 43rd last year. So we're getting better at it, but still nowhere near what Clemson is in terms of creating havoc in the backfield. Uh, here's another example. Clemson was 10th nationally in stuff rate last year. Again, that's the the percentage of, of plays that are stopped at or behind line of scrimmage. We were only 88th, all right? So they're much more disruptive. They create much more havoc because that's what a one-gap run-through defense does. That's what it does. But we don't we don't follow that philosophy. That's just not what we do. We have had far more structural integrity and, and, and have been significantly better in limiting big runs. So again, I, I laid out the numbers earlier, but let's just go back. So like we gave up three runs of 20 plus yards last year. Clemson gave up 12, right? They gave up four times as many rushes of 20 or more yards than we did, okay? And it wasn't just a one-year thing. Go, go to 2019, same story. We gave up four rushes of 20 plus yards in 2019. Clemson gave up 15. They gave up 15, right? So yeah, they are better at, disrupt, at disrupting the play and getting tackles for loss, that kind of thing. 
but they're giving up a lot more, a lot more big plays on the ground than we are. It's really not even close. So what stacking our inside linebackers and playing a two-gap scheme does for us is it gives us depth in the defense, meaning that we don't have all of our front seven players at the same level when the running back's coming through the line of scrimmage, all right? Because all the Clemson's players, go watch them, guys. Like when they're when when the running backs get the ball and come through the line of scrimmage, almost every one of the players in their front seven, defensive line and linebackers, are on the line of scrimmage in their gap. They're filling that gap. They're running through that gap, and that that's fine. You can create some big plays if you, if you get those guys. But our our two gap scheme, our stack scheme, it gives us overlap. Okay. What that means is that our inside linebackers can play more than just their assigned gap if the play goes there. They can kind of overlap into another gap. That's where that term comes from. It can, and that can give you an extra defender in the gap where the ball is actually going if you have these guys that are playing a couple yards of line of scrimmage and reading. They're not just automatically flying into their gap. If you fly into your gap, well, then you can't help any other gap because you're in there. You're stuck. You can't, you're not reading it. You're just flying up upfield. So for example, if the Mike has the B gap and he stacks that gap three yards off the line of scrimmage, but the back actually takes it around the edge into the C gap, well, the Mike backer can read that because he's not flying downhill in the gap. And since he hasn't committed himself to running through his initial gap, he can fall off and overlap and make that play in the C gap. Like it's great to be aggressive and attack like teams like Clemson do. If you get the running back, it's great. We all want tackles for loss. The chances of a team scoring a touchdown on a drive go down like 80% if there's like one tackle for loss in that drive. So like, that's huge. You want to be able to do that. I get why Clemson does that. But that really, really helps if you actually get the running back. But if you run through your gap and the ball carrier, like let's say he cuts back and he breaks that first line defense because everyone's on that first line. They're all there on, on the same level. Then he's off the races. There, the second, there is no second level. The second level is on the line of scrimmage. It's all one level now if you play run gap. And that's a recipe for game-changing explosive runs. So it's it's just a matter of preference. You, you gotta you gotta do the calculus. Are sacks and tackles for loss in your mind more valuable to you than explosive runs are damaging to your chances of winning? Are tackles for loss and sacks more game changing for the defense than explosive home run type runs are for the offense? That's the question you gotta ask yourself. And different coaches have different answers to those questions. Kirby Smart's answer is, well, we're gonna put an emphasis on making sure we don't give those home run plays because that can that's what can change games. We're gonna try to get after the passers if we can, we're gonna try to create tackles for loss if we can, if we win one-on-one. But more than anything, our priority is to stop the explosive runs. Okay. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. And finally, let's move this to the third level, the secondary. And, and we're going to focus on safety play here. And with our safeties, we play a very interesting technique that we call middle of the field cheat. Now, this is pretty new stuff, um, and I've actually been studying this over the past year or so myself. This is kind of new to me. 
Uh, it's pretty new as far as I know. And it's really effective in limiting explosive runs and helping take away RPOs. Now, Kirby's been doing this since going back to Alabama, uh, but I wasn't really studying Alabama that much at that time. Not as much as like I, I study Georgia now, right? And so I, I, it's really after the Oklahoma game. We're going to go into more detail with this next week. I promise you I will. But that's when, that's when I was like, man, like we got to do something with our safety. Well, what, are, what are we doing with our safety? And that's when I started to pay attention to like, what are we trying to do here? I think it also caught Kirby's attention after that, that, that Rose Bowl game where they were just gashing us in the first half. You guys all saw that. But we'll talk about that more in detail next week. But um, like everything I've said today, like we don't, we don't play it all the time. All the things I've talked about today, all the different techniques, all the different fronts, we don't play it all the time. But when we are in a middle of the field closed look, which some of you might be more familiar with me just saying single high safety coverages, which is typically going to be either cover three or cover one. More often than not, cover three. This is the technique that we play with. When we have one safety cover in the middle of the field, we are playing this middle of the field cheat technique. That's what we do. And this is something else that we will go into more detail with later on this month, I promise you that we will, but it also fits in with what we're talking about today with our rush demon. So I definitely want to cover it here a little bit, give you a little bit of a primer, and then go into more detail on another episode. But I mentioned that we usually play this middle of the field cheat technique with the safety when we are in cover three, because that's the most common middle field closed or one high safety coverage. So let me talk a little bit more about cover three so you kind of understand why we might be playing this technique when we're in cover three and how it's different than how tra- how cover three is like traditionally played. So traditionally, that coverage, coverage three, the way it's been played for decades is with that one high safety aligning dead in the middle of the field about 15 or so yards off the ball and then dropping even deeper on the snap of the ball. You kind of see them open up their hips and they're just going 20, 25 yards deep in the middle of the field. That's kind of traditionally what the middle of the field safety is done in cover three. But what that does is that takes the safety completely out of the run game. They can't have any run fits when they're doing that. And that gives the offense an easy plus one there if they're trying to run the football because that safety is not going to be involved in the run game. So what we do in those looks, in a nutshell, is we align our single high safety 10 to 12 yards off the line of scrimmage instead of 15 yards. And we put him on the hash rather than dead middle of the field. And then once the ball snapped, that safety, instead of just taking a beeline towards the middle of the field, 20, 25 yards down the field on the snap, no matter what's happening, he then is going to shuffle and he's going to read runner pass. Okay. Now when he's reading runner pass, what is he actually reading to decide if it's a runner pass play? Well, the safety is actually reading the offensive line for runner pass. He's not reading the quarterback. He's not reading receivers. He's looking at the offensive line. And the offensive line has a tell. And there are ways like offensive linemen can be coached to try to, you know, be deceptive here. But you can typically tell. If the offensive line is standing straight up with a high hat, we said this high hat versus low hat. High hat means the offensive line on the snap, they're basically standing straight up and they're like in pass protection, right? They're not driving down. With that high hat look, that that is an indicator that's going to be a pass. Low hat means they're kind of driving off the ball. They're getting trying to get under the defender. Their hat, their their helmet is kind of down, right? It kind of points down. It's not straight up like if they're standing up in a stance. So it's high hat versus low hat. If you read high hat, it's a pass. If you read offensive line with low hat, it, more often than not, it's going to be a run. 
And so if it's a hi-hat, he reads pass, he does go ahead and drop to that deep throw like you would traditionally in a cover three. But if it's low hat and it's a run read, he's going to drive on the RPO. So let's just, and there's different ways you can do RPOs. Again, this is a, very much a simplification. But let's say the most common RPO is like a slant down across the middle of the field, right? So if he reads low hat and that's a run read or RPO read, He's going to first look for an RPO. He's going to look for the receiver kind of coming across the middle of the field and drive against that if it's there. That helps take away the RPO. Or if he doesn't see that, if they're just running a basic run play and there's no RPO attached to it, he's just going to fit against the run. And so this does a couple different things. It helps relieve pressure on the inside linebacker or star who is in conflict in the RPO, who basically the offense, the quarterback is reading in that situation. It can also give you another hat against the run, gives you that plus one. And Additionally, as we go back to the theme of this episode, it helps eliminate the explosive runs because you have another defender involved in the run game. So that's the basics of what we are doing at all three levels to help us become a dominant rush defense. Now, as I said at the outset, and I've said several times throughout this episode, forgive me for repeating myself, there is far more to it than just this what we've covered on this episode. And there are a few things uh, like the mint front and the middle field cheat safety that we touched on today that I will certainly go into far more detail on with later episodes. But I think this is a really good start to kind of help you understand, number one, the why. The philosophy behind why we put such an emphasis on stopping the run, how that's connected to making us more structurally sound against the pass as well. And then number two, the how. How do we go about doing that and executing that philosophy from a technical X and O standpoint? Now, trust me, I want to go on and on with this right now. Like I'm, I'm, I'm on a roll right now, guys. I'm feeling this. I could go for another hour or two easy, but we're already almost an hour in, and I don't want to overload your brains too much with, with episode one here of our Scheme Theme Month. So I think this is a good foundation, and we're going to build on it throughout the next month or so. But before I get out of here, uh, let's just recap this real quick with the quick takeaways. So let's just go back to the beginning here. So our core philosophy, again, is be able to defend the run with even or less numbers than what the offense has in the box. What that does is it allows you to have numbers against the pass in an era where the pass is increasingly dominating all levels of football. So I know it seems kind of counterintuitive, but by putting such an emphasis on stopping the run, we're actually helping ourselves defend the pass as well. Now, how do we do that? How do we actually execute this philosophy? So looking at it level by level, on the defensive line, level one, we do a lot of two-gapping. We have primary and secondary gaps. It's not every player on every snap, but we do a lot of that. Uh, we play. We use the mint front, which I will go into more detail with next week. That allows us to basically defend the inside run and, and maintain size inside against offenses that have the kind of the spread to run type scheme. Uh, the edge players, uh, I guess you could, you could I, we could call them second level at times, but we're going to keep the edge players on that that first level. But the edge players, we do a lot of high gear, low gear. Like that's the philosophy here, right? Attack or, or kind of react. If you're a high gear player, when the back is away from you, you're striking the blocker and setting the edge. That's what you're doing. Now, with the low gear edge defender that's aligned to the same side that the, that the running back is on in a shotgun formation, he, his responsibility is to contain the quarterback run, the cutback, and the misdirection. He will do that by playing with a low gear surf technique, not committing overly hard to chase down the running back or the ball carrier from the backside. 
Then at the second level, we got inside linebackers, and we are a stack fit inside linebacker team. We're not a run-through team like Clemson is, where you just run through the gap uh, as soon as the ball snapped and get everybody at one level. We like to keep some depth in our defense, and we stack our linebackers in their assigned gap about two or three yards off the line of scrimmage, and they're reading, reacting. If it comes in in their gap, they're going to fit that. That's when they kind of move forward and move downhill. And then at the third level with the safeties, we play a lot of middle of the field cheat technique when we are in those middle of the field closed looks with a single high safety, where that safety is not playing a traditional middle of the field single high safety look. He's cheating up, he's shuffling, he's reading offensive line for run pass indicators to tell him whether to drop to the deep middle or drive an RPO or fit against the run. He's lining about 10 to 12 yards deep as opposed to 15 yards deep, not running straight to the middle. It's that it's that kind of cheat shuffle where he's reading, he's cheating, he's reading. He's not just moving straight back. He's basically trying to have it. He's trying to be able to be a part of of both possibilities, whether it's a run play or a pass play. So if you go back and watch some of our games over the summer, if you get a chance to, look for these things. Guys, if you have some of these recorders, if you see them on SEC Network, see some of these replays, look for these things. You will see them. And the more you look for them and see them on a second or third watch or whatever, the more you're going to be able to pick up on them live when you're watching a game. And again, yes, yes, yes. Far more to it than just these things, but I want to give you something that we do at each level of the defense that I think has become a big part of why we are so dominant against the run, and that by extension allows us to get numbers against the pass. We are going to build on this. Um, Next week, I kind of said this at the outset, I'm going to address all of the clueless, know-nothing talking heads out there that push this narrative that Kirby Smart is just a great recruiter, but not a great X's and O's coach by detailing a number of different innovations and some adjustments that Kirby and his staff have implemented in within our defense to kind of answer the offensive innovations that we've seen over the years. We'll go into more detail on the mint front. We'll go into more detail in the middle of the, fee, middle of the field cheat technique. And we're also going to talk about some red zone adjustments that we've made over the past couple of years to really improve our red zone numbers. So look forward to that, guys. I'm really excited about it. I had a lot of fun here talking about some, some real nuts and bolts, X's and O's football. But before I get out of here, I do want to encourage you to not only send in other questions that you have about other aspects of, of the sport, but send me send me any questions you have about this particular episode. If you want more details, if you don't quite understand something I discussed today, if I didn't do a good job explaining something, which is certainly possible, uh, I know it's hard without the visuals to kind of like just visualize all this in your mind. I'm a very visual learner, so I, I know it's tough if you're like me to kind of truly grasp it on one listen without those visuals. So if you uh, if you don't quite understand something or if you want to clarify anything, whatever it may be, please feel free to hit me up on Twitter or email. Again, that's glory underscore UGA on Twitter or glory UGA podcast at gmail.com on email. But that's it for me today here, guys, for our inaugural Scheme Theme Month episode. I hope you guys enjoy this. I know it was a lot, a lot of stuff just thrown at you today. So again, if you get a chance, listen to it more than once. It doesn't have to be like tomorrow, but give it a couple of listens and I think you'll pick up something more and more each time. All the other episodes aren't going to be maybe as detailed and won't have as much thrown at you in one episode, but I wanted to start us off with a bang and uh, really, really hit you hard with some X and O talk here. 
in our inaugural episode. So I really hope you guys enjoyed it. I'd love to hear from you guys. Let me know um, what you guys think and uh, what you would like to hear moving forward as we talk some more X's and O's the rest of the month. But thanks for listening to me, guys. Thanks for sticking with me, just going straight here for an hour. I really appreciate it. I hope this was beneficial for you. I hope it was helpful. I hope it's um, going to help you guys enjoy watching Georgia football even more than you already do. But Curtis and I will be back next week. We'll have some mailback stuff for you. We'll have a recap of what's going on in Orlando at the NCAA Tennis Tournament. Both the men and women are in the Sweet 16, as we did a show earlier in the week. You guys know that if you listen to that episode. We'll have a recap of that, and then we'll wrap up the week again, just like we did this week with our second episode of our Scheme Theme Month. So a lot, lot to look forward to, guys. Have a great weekend. We will see you all next week, or we'll be with you all next week. But uh, I'm Tyler, and as always, go dogs.